Hey, boys, let's raise a glass. We have S.A. Sean Cosby in the house. Yeah, there he is. He's back. Woohoo! How's it going, guys? Good to ah. see you guys again. Yeah, yeah man. man. It's good to have you, man. man. Totally looking forward to this one. Hey, so, Sean, last time when we talked last year, you mentioned you were writing a story about two dads setting, uh, set on avenging the murder of their, their gay sons. And at first I was like, okay, that, that might be a good read. Uh, but shit, man, I should have known better uh, because I just finished reading Blacktop Wasteland, which is right over my left shoulder, because holy hell, razor blade tears. Dude, it blew me away in every way possible. And I, and, and I mean that sincerely. Uh, but for those who might just be discovering this book and, and, and discovering you, would you mind giving us the uh, the elevator pitch for Razorblade Tears? Oh, uh, yeah, no problem. Love to. Uh, so basically, Razorblade Tears is a story of two fathers, one black, one white, both ex-cons, who uh, once, uh, when their gay sons are murdered in what appears to be a hate crime, they decide to uh, take up the investigation themselves because they don't feel the police are doing uh, their due diligence. But also, they're trying to redeem themselves because neither one of them were accepting of their son's uh, sexuality. So it's a story about revenge and redemption and grief and uh, how, uh, how we process those things and, uh, and a wood chipper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, right, there's do. a wood chipper. <laughs> we do. <laughs> uh, so, so in Raised Blade Tears, I mean, you also you tackle a lot of serious topics. Uh, and, and it's not just like just one topic, serious topics, a whole host of them. You know, you have black, white, gray, trans, hetero, rich, poor relationships, father and son, wife and husband. And any one of those issues would have been enough to fill a, a story. Uh, and yet you weaved all of those things into this into this fantastic book. So was that always the plan? And did you intend to explore those issues or did all those issues evolve organically as you wrote the story? Um, I think I knew initially going in that I was going to talk about two men of a certain age who are very narrow-minded in their beliefs. But some of the other stuff just became natural narrative, uh, was a, became a part of the natural narrative flow. You know, you've got these two older gentlemen. Uh, in my mind, uh, since I'm 47, they're 55 and 54, respectively. Uh, mm -hmm. Try to keep that away for as long as possible. And, um, <laughs> but in my mind, you know, you got these, you got these guys uh, that are forced to, you know, sit in the truck. And because it's in the yeah. country, because it takes place in southeastern Virginia, it takes 30 to 45 minutes to an hour to get anywhere. So yeah, you got anywhere. these long period of time, periods of time. Yeah. You have these long periods of time where they, they have no choice but to talk. And in talking they confront a lot of things about themselves racism mm -hmm. homophobia classism um and 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 then these two men these two gentlemen that are our protagonists i did intentionally make it so that no one gave them an easy out like no one everybody called them on their bs including mm -hmm. ike's wife including people in the lgbtq community that they meet or they run into including buddy lee's neighbor who yeah. kind of yeah. sort of has a crush on him yeah. and so you know and by and by doing that it forced them as characters to confront the bad things about themselves by, by while also seeing the potential for for good and growth in themselves as well yeah hmm. <laughs> Um, one of the central storylines is an issue that families across the country encounter on a daily basis, which we've just talked about, same-sex couples, and the geographical and cultural qualities you're all too aware of in the rural South really drove home the struggle of an older generation rooted in old beliefs pitted against the, a father's love for their sons. Um, had you seen that growing up? Uh, where did this issue spring from uh, for the kind of the central theme for raised related tears. Um, I had seen it a little bit growing up, you know, like I said, I'm 47. So when I was a kid, um, and this isn't to be dismissive at all, but when I was a kid, most of the gay people that I knew were very closeted or mm. it was an open secret. And, and, yeah. and so like, I don't want to put anybody on blast, but there were certain people <laughs> in certain positions in my, in my church, or in certain positions in the community that it was like, I think he's gay, I think, or she's a uh, lesbian or what, but they weren't 
allowed to be openly out, you know? Right. And I live in a small town of 8,000 people. And so, you know, in, mm. in 1986 or 87, when I was 13 or 14, it was difficult for interracial couples to be out openly, yeah. let alone a gay person. Right. And so growing up, I didn't see that as much. But what, what was the genesis of this book was I have a friend who's about the same age as I am. And about five years ago, um, he came out to his parents. Like we all knew he was gay, yeah. but his parents either didn't know or didn't acknowledge it. And so he basically forced the issue and it didn't go well. And I remember I was having a beer with him later and he said, you know, maybe I should have kept it to myself. And that just really struck me. I can't imagine how it felt for him to say that. Yeah. But for me hearing it, it was devastating because I can't imagine not being able to be the full version of yourself with people who are supposed to love you unconditionally. Right. You know, and, yeah, and so that just kind of rattled. Yeah, yes, your parents, your parents are supposed to love. I mean, you know, if my mama can love me for getting in fist fights and getting kicked out of bars and, <laughs> you know, maybe possibly setting the backwoods on fire, then <laughs> so anybody can allegedly. anything. <laughs> yeah. Allegedly, you know, inspired by an episode of MacGyver. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> but seriously, um, <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's always st it stuck with me. And so when I got ready to do the follow-up to Blacktop Wasteland, I really, how can I put this? I really wanted to do something different. Like I was getting advice from some corners, like, you know, do Blacktop Wasteland 2 or do another heist novel yeah. or do something in that vein. Maybe not even carrying on with Bug, who's the central character of Blacktop, but mm -hmm. do something in that same vein. And I, I pushed back on that. Not, it wasn't like a confrontation or nothing. I just, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to challenge myself and see if I was able to tell a different type of story. And so that's why I really pressed ahead with Razor Blade Tears. But it was hard. It was difficult. And I went through a lot of iterations. It went through a lot of drafts. Um, I had friends who are from the LGBT community that read it. And gave me a lot of insight and a lot of uh, points, awesome. uh, you know, where I went right and yeah. where I went wrong. One of my friends, he's, he's thanked in the uh, in the comments. Uh, he's the author himself, PJ Vernon. He just wrote a book called Bathhouse, which yeah. is a great book, yeah. by the way. But um, and he's a good friend of mine. And one of the points that he made to me, I let him read an early draft. And there's a scene in the book where there's a, a, a scene in a, a gay bar. And the end of the scene, there's a confrontation, a physical mm -hmm. confrontation. And I wrote the scene very solemn. Like I had the scene where basically what happens is Ike and Buddy Lee find a clue to who murdered their sons. And so they go to investigate it at this gay bar and they're trying to get some info. Whereas Buddy Lee is basically a functioning alcoholic. So he's just rolling with the punches. He's like, they got yeah. liquor, I don't care. Yeah, uh, literally. <laughs> Ike is very uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, Ike is very uncomfortable. He's not able to let go of his prejudices uh, enough to even just do the work that they're there to do. So anyway, he gets hit on, you know, and right. he reacts very negatively, very violently. Yeah. And uh, in the initial scene, I had everybody stand up to the side and kind of observe him in a disappointed manner and all that kind of stuff. And PJ, God bless him, he said, you know, a fight in a gay bar is like a fight in every other bar. Mm -hmm. Tables get turned over, people getting involved, people trying to get out the way. He said, it's chaos. He said, don't, you know, you don't have to put uh, LGBTQ people on a pedestal. He said, it's just like anywhere else. When somebody, you know, throws a punch, it, all different types of things happen. And so that was one of the examples that made me realize, okay, if I'm going to tell the story, I have to be brutally honest with everybody. Sure. The black characters, the white characters, the LGBTQ characters, you know, everybody has to be shown warts and all so that the story uh, has a certain resonance. So right, I nailed it. <laughs> it did. Uh, Mike mentioned the generational clashes, um, and it's easy to get. Spe speaking of clashes, it's easy to get depressed at the state of things and the national discourse if social media is the lens with which you view everything through. But first, with Beauregard and or Bug, and now with Ike and Billy Ray, people are investing in these characters whose lives are alien to most of us you know, to be honest, and intellectually they're walking, at least they're walking in their shoes. Does it give you a bit of hope to see how enthusiastically your characters have been embraced? I think, uh, I think hope is everlasting. 
Um, I believe that, you know, social media isn't the real world. I've learned right. that. Hmm. If that's one thing I've learned, uh, it, the Twitter and Facebook, that's not the real world. You can, nah, if you just, if you are alien and you came down to the planet Earth and you read Twitter and you read Facebook or you read Instagram, whatever social media platform, you would think, oh, wow, we should just, uh, we should nuke this planet because <laughs> we're so miserable. And uh, <laughs> yeah, let's put them out of their misery. Um, but when you go out in the real world, especially even now with the, in the, in the, in the, I would say, hopefully, hopefully in the waning days of the pandemic, hopefully get vaccinated mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. waning days of the pandemic, or even before that, like you, I went out like to New York city. And if you believe everybody on social media, you would think, oh my God, New York city is cesspool of violence and anger. Everybody's in a bad mood and you're going to get robbed and beat. And it could nothing be further from the truth. You know, I enjoy going to New York city and I'm as country as they get. I'm country right down to my boots. And I love going up there. I love going to Vegas with some friends. Um, I think it was Mark Twain that said, if you force a man to travel, he has no choice but to open his mind. And I think that's true. And so seeing people embrace Ike and Buddy Lee is sort of forcing them to travel in a way. Right. It's forcing them to come to southeastern Virginia and see people like Ike, who was a former ex-con who's fought and scraped and scratched his way to some form of respectability, or somebody like Buddy Lee, who's lost his way, who feels sort of this existential weight, but at his core, he's done bad things, but he's a good yeah. person, just like at his core, Ike is a good person. Right. So I think, you know, when you see, <laughs> when you go on Instagram and you see readers from Connecticut or Oregon or San Francisco say they love the book, you know, or you see uh, 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 bookstagrammers from all walks of life that are very different from my experience, say how much they love the book. And I feel like I've taken them on a journey mm-hmm. and they've traveled to my little corner of the world. It does give me hope. It gives yeah. me a lot of hope that, um, you know, uh, the human condition is not um, terminal as far as like <laughs> for kindness and empathy. Yeah. So Sean, those those who don't those who don't know you might might think you came out of nowhere that you merged on the like the thriller crime mystery instant theme success as a fully formed writer, right? <laughs> but but we know we know you put the work in day in and day out. You were writing, and at first you you did short stories. You even won a bunch of awards for your short stories. Um, do you think starting off writing short stories helped you as a novelist? And would you advise aspiring authors who might be struggling with breaking through to write some short stories? Yeah, I definitely think writing short stories made me a better novelist. Because, you know, for the longest time, I didn't think I could write a novel. I, I felt like the short story was my medium. And a, a good friend of mine uh, named Todd Robinson, um, he was the one that encouraged me to write a crime novel. He was like, you're such a good short story writer. He said, just expand it. You know, just, he said, all a book is, this is his, I don't know if it's his quote originally, but he told me one time, he said, all a book is, is a bunch of little short stories. Yep. Each chapter yeah. is a little short story. And so he kind of gave me the, 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 it gave me the courage, like, all right, I'm going to try it. But I, I don't think, personally speaking for me, I would have been good at writing novels if I hadn't gotten pretty good at writing short stories with a beginning, a middle, and an end, you know, and, you know, the rising action and then the denouement. I mean, that's, I think that's the part of learning how to write a story, how to write a propulsive story. I mean, now if you're a, I think, especially for crime writing, I think it's really important. I think it's important to be a short story writer. Now, if you're, you know, if you want to write uh, what they call lit- literary fiction or general fiction, mm-hmm. I don't think you necessarily, I don't know if it would necessarily be as important to you. Like if you read, and I love this person's work, if you read Donna Tart, I can't imagine Donna Tart writing a short story. You know, I've read uh, The Secret uh, History and The Gold Finch, and those books are, are heavy duty. Those books are weapons. I could put wow. that book in a pillowcase and bust somebody inside the head with it. Um, and, I, I don't, I can't imagine her writing a short story because her style, her vocabulary, the evocativeness of her of her work is just book length. That's it. Right. But I think if you're a crime fiction writer, it teaches you how to create suspense and atmosphere and action. And uh, yeah, if you want to break into crime writing, try to get your short fiction idea. Try to get in anthologies, try to get in magazines, mm. collections, all of that. Because the hard truth is this is a business. And people, this business is built on relationships. So if you've got an editor at a magazine that you get to know and that you write some good work, 
they're probably going to publish your work and that's going to show up in maybe another person's uh, mailbox or email box. An agent might use through that magazine or that anthology. Uh, the, the, I think the secret to trying to get published is getting your name out there. Nobody's going to come knocking on your door yeah. and beg for your genius. So <laughs> right, image. <laughs> if I only. Hey, by the way, some. hold on. He said. He said. Uh, he's. He. I think you said you're an okay short. You do some good short stories, or you're okay, dude. Come on. Yeah. So, yeah. Dude. <laughs> Please, we're gonna talk him up. <laughs> hey, let's let's go back to Razorblade Tears I mean... for a second. Uh, with so, and we've kind of hit on this a little bit. There was a ton of storylines really unfolding all around you. I felt like it was like a three hundred and sixty with all these stories happening. Um, it, was there any point in time uh, that you were worried that maybe you were going to get lost a little bit? Um, like, how did you? Yeah, every day. <laughs> <laughs> I always, I, every time I went to write it, I'm like, okay, I, I got to remember this thing. And I got to remember this thing. And I got to make some notes. And I got to remember who this person is. And are these people here? Because I'm obsessed with plot holes. Yeah. I hate plot holes in my mm. own work. I, you know, I'm the worst person to go to a movie with if it's going to yeah. have any kind of suspense or mystery or anything like that. Because I'm the first, I'm the person that will nudge you. Hey, hey. They couldn't have known that. They wanted that in life. And everybody's like, shut up. We paid $16. I'm like, I'm just saying. Um, and so, um, yeah, I rewrote and wrote those storylines. And I, my, my biggest concern, though, was bringing it all home. You know? Right. It's one thing to set off a bunch of, of storylines, like, you know, when you're fishing. It's one thing to cast off a lot of lines. Yeah. There's nothing to reel all those lines in at the same time. And so my biggest concern was how do I tie all of this together? Some of that was planned, but some of that was accidental as hell. You know, wow. if you read the book, really? there's a character. If you've read the book, there's a character who Ike, who owes Ike a favor. But right. Ike is very reticent to Slice. claim this favor because he has to go back. Yeah, Slice. Um, and Slice does something in the book that is very uh, is very duplicitous. That mm. was an accident. When mm. I got to that point, no kidding. I thought about it and I said, "Man, you know what'd be cool? I think it'd be cool if Slice did this and tie it back to something that was very random in the beginning, in the first second chapter." Uh, and so, because the the thing I tied it to was yeah. just me trying to show how bad a certain set of characters were. And yeah. I'm like, oh man, what if that's tied together? I mean, they're all in Virginia. It's not like they wouldn't know each other. They're all criminals. Right. So that was a happy accident. And then from that accident, I was able to backfill it and like, oh, well, this is why Slice is doing it. This is why he feels this way. He's jealous of, 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 of Ike because right. of something Ike did yeah. that he didn't have the strength to do. And so it made the story, I think, more nuanced and more layered. Uh, and more complex. And if you read the book to the end, there's a little hint of uh, Slice's uh, uh, yeah. final destination. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah I did like that. <laughs> By the way, that was no accident, man. I mean, I, I, we were writers, and I, I feel I tell my wife this all the time. Like, I don't know why I wrote this part in, but I know it's gonna it's gonna tie in somewhere <laughs> down the road later on. I'm like, I have no idea why this character is doing this. No idea. I just I had to write it though, and then it just ties it in and. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's so it's not an accident. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so again, sticking with the characters, um, a lot of writers tend to make their protagonist um, an avatar for themselves, uh, an idealized version, a turbocharged version, a flawed version. In Bug, Ike, and Billy Ray, you've created characters who have done things. I'm guessing Sean Cosby has not done. Um, <laughs> We're hoping. Anyway. We, we won't quantify everything. Not, not at all. There's a lot that you, you haven't done. So uh, in what ways, though, do you inject your own DNA into those characters when they are, when they are di diametrically opposed to you in some moral sense? I mean, like, with, I guess of the three characters, the least one, the one I'm least like is, is Buddy Lee because he's an older white guy from the South. And, but I, I, you know, I, by virtue of where I live and by virtue of the life I've led, I've got a lot of friends who are older white guys in the South. A lot of them are way more enlightened than Buddy Lee, but <laughs> they come from a background and a situation that is similar. 
Now they've chosen to to educate themselves, so to speak, and become better people. But you know, like for instance, there's a scene toward the end of the book where uh, Buddy Lee is relaying to Ike an anecdote about him and his grandfather watching the Ten Commandments. That anecdote is based on a conversation I had with a friend, a, a white guy that he was talking about, you know, that's my grandfather and I love him. But then at the same time, he made this horribly racist joke. Yeah. And when I was like nine or 10, I laughed and I feel bad about that all the time. And I, and I, you know, basically Ike's response is sort of my response, but my response was, was more sensitive where Ike doesn't care about Buddy Lee's feelings. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, if you talk about Ike and Buddy Lee, I think, their experiences as African-American men specifically and African-American people in general are, are how I'm able to enter their spaces. Um, I think with, but with Bug, I think Bug was the voice I needed to use to talk about some things that were personally difficult for me. Um, I had a difficult relationship with my father and you know later on with my mom and I was able to repair the relationship with my father while being able to give nuance to relationship with my mom. And so hmm. I've never robbed a jewelry store, but uh, I've driven fast. I've, I've worked on, <laughs> stuff and I've had a drag race or two, um, but yeah. with bug, it was much more closer. It was much more personal with Ike. I'm not Ike. I don't have very much in common with Ike outside of even his violent past, just the way he views the world. I'm, you know, I, I don't see things that way, but hmm. I know a lot of people who do. I know right. a lot of people who see things that way, who would tell themselves, would tell you, I'm a good person. I go to church every Sunday or I take care of my family. And just because I don't think two men should be together doesn't make me a bad person. And because they have that blind side, that blind spot in their, in their personality, they're not able to understand that you're not really a good person. Yeah. All yeah. those good things don't, don't stack up well against this, this, this what you think is one bad thing. And so I knew people like Ike. I know people like Ike. And I've had conversations with people. The conversation in the barbershop. I've had that conversation, mm -hmm. you know? And yeah. I've been the I've been that barber who's like, you know, you guys are full of crap. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to talk about that because I, I will say this real quick. Um, also, part of the inspiration for the book is I really wanted to talk about the socially, not politically, but the socially conservative uh, streak that runs through the African-American community in the South. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of the African-American community and experience centers around church and religion and ideas of masculinity and femininity that are pretty old school, rigid, and in many ways outdated. And I really wanted to talk about that because I personally feel like that's a problem that nobody's addressing. And, um, you know, I'll give you guys this anecdote. When I was growing up, there were two words that you could say to me as a kid that I was taught were a fight on sight. If you say these two words, we're going to fight. One of them was the N-word, mm. but the other one was the pejorative for a gay person. Yeah. And I've seen situations in my own life where people that I knew were markedly angrier for being called a gay, a, a pejorative for a gay person than they were for the N-word. That doesn't mean they were jumping up and clicking their heels together yeah. for being called the N-word, but I could see a different sort of anger, a different sort of, it was like a, a almost a more personal attack. And um, growing up around that, I have a theory as to why that is. Um, and and I'll, just, I'll just give you the cliff note. I think for some African-American men, you're already fighting the idea idea that the rest of the world doesn't see you as a man or as a person you know and that's you know you're called boy by some people or mm -hmm. you're not treated as an adult male and so you're very protective of your idea of masculinity right. what i feel personally is everybody's idea of masculinity is their own my idea is different from yours different from sean's different from you know anybody else's and i think if we are able to understand that i think there would be less conflict when it comes to seeing you know two men who are gay or two women who are gay or somebody who's trans because ultimately that's got nothing to do with me that's not nothing to do with me unless they 
you know, running to me in traffic and we got to exchange insurance or, <laughs> you know, they're rude to me at a bar or something. People living their life has nothing yeah. to do with me, you know? And, and I think way. there is a dichotomy. No. And I think there's a dichotomy, especially as an African-American man, I see there's a dichotomy, dichotomy for this, you know, the, the, the search and fight for civil rights as a person of color and the search and fight for civil rights as a, as a member of the LGBTQ community. And I think there's a lot of intersectionality there, hmm. you know, um, that a lot of people aren't willing to acknowledge. Well, I, I must apologize really quickly. Uh, and you were very gracious not to smack me upside the head for calling Buddy Lee Billy Ray twice, <laughs> not once, but twice. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Billy Ray? I thought you were Ray Cyrus? I thought you were thinking, I thought you were thinking, yeah. I thought you had an achy, breaky heart, so I didn't want to get into it. Well, I, I do Staying happen over. to know Billy Ray, who is as redneck as, as anybody I've ever met in my entire life. <laughs> That's what I was like. I was like, what book did I read? Is Billy, I was reading that book. I figured y'all fixing in post, so I didn't say anything. <laughs> yeah, dump it over in Japanese. We're yeah. good. Oh, but I, I love that that barbershop scene. Because, um, yeah. I mean, look, look at me. I, I haven't spent time in a... I got friends who go to the barbershop you know black friends who go to the barbershop and they and they tell me all the the funny jokes and stories that go on you know but i look at my hair i i don't i don't go to the <laughs> black barber uh so but but there was there was there was like the the kid he was getting his hair cut and 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 ike mm. having that conversation how he had just had that really tenuous conversation with slice and then he comes out and he still needed to get some shit off his chest. And I was like, I was like, damn, I was waiting. I was waiting for another bar scene, you know, for some, was something too. to happen in there. I was like, oh my gosh. Whirlwind followed a riot around. I think Ike, I, I think Ike, uh, Buddy Lee gets the best funny lines, he but does. I think Ike gives the best threats. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. Because if somebody yeah. told me, you get about, if somebody told me you get about that chair, they'll be picking pieces of you out of the wall for a week. I would sit my ass back down. So. <laughs> oh, dude, Sean, Sean, you so you're the king of uh, of similes? No, uh, colloquialisms. Yeah, similes, similes, yeah. Uh, there was one laugh out one that that buddy buddy lead something about his nuts, dude. I I laughed out. My wife's like, "What are you reading?" I was like, "I'm like, he's killing me. <laughs> he's killing me." It was so it was laugh out funny, dude. <laughs> Some of that shit that just popped, like, Buddy Lee gets I was wondering, dude, I was wondering, like, do, do those just pop into your head? Because if they do, write them down man, all the time. I, I wish, I wish <laughs> I had yeah, that. Yeah, um, I, I, I grew up in a family of very, very comical people. I grew up with a lot of uh, uh, backyard orators and, uh, you know, cookout, barbecue, uh, raconteurs. And all of my uncles and aunts were very sharp on their feet when I was a kid. They always playing <laughs> dozens and picking at each other and making yeah, jokes. Yeah. And so I grew up in an environment where you had to have a thick skin and you had to learn to be really quick on your feet because they had no mercy. You know, <laughs> they had no mercy at all. <laughs> and so I remember, I remember, I remember one night uh, I'm telling on myself, I remember one night I went out <laughs> and I got poopy drunk. I just got poopy drunk. I came home and we were living with my grandmother at the time. And I, I laid down on the floor because I couldn't get up the steps. I was like, I'm not going to make it. I've had too much moonshine and too much cheap liquor. <laughs> and I just laid down in the hall, hall and my grandma comes in and she steps over me and she stops and turns around and she says, you know what? If I put an apple in your mouth, you look like a killing hog. And just kept on walking. <laughs> <laughs> your grandmother said that? So, Oh yeah, my grandmother said that. My grandfather was sharp on his feet. My Dude, uncles awesome. were really sharp on their feet. You had to, like I said, you came to my house. You had to be have a thick skin and be ready to throw down. So, oh, but yeah. it was all done in love. It was all yeah, done. Yeah. And, and I, you know, like I always tell people, we were really poor, but we were rich in love and spirit. And I, I actually miss those days. You know, a lot yeah, of people don't you? On and you know, uh, yeah, I remember being a kid and having uh, spontaneous cookouts. Like it'd be a Saturday evening. And somebody would show up and like, oh, I got some, uh, I got some venison, I got some deer meat. Can we throw it in the grill? And my grandfather would roll his grill out, and then another person would see the smoke, and they pull, pull in the driveway, and another <laughs> person would come over. I got a, I got a bottle of something. Y'all want to drink it? And then somebody would get a big. And this now I'm really dating myself. Somebody would get a big boombox radio. Yeah, or my sure. grandmother, God rest her soul. God rest her soul. My grandma. 
grandmother had one of those floor model record players, and we drag it out on the porch, <laughs> and then she played Martin Marvin Gaye and Jackie yeah, Wilson. Awesome. And, you know, it's just uh, I remember those times. So yeah, but yeah, those a lot of those lines pop in my head as I'm writing. Oh my uh, one gosh. of my favorite ones, and I don't know if it, I don't know if everybody gets it. But when Ike and Buddy Lee go to the uh, the head shop, the the, the bong shop, yep. and uh, one of the guys there has a monocle, and yep. he's about to interfere in a fight, and Buddy <laughs> Lee says, guy. "Well, you roll, Panama Jack." <laughs> yeah. I love that one. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> there was there was. I so laughed when I wrote there. that. Oh man, that was so awesome. <laughs> hey, so so just recently, I um. I posted on social media that you, Sean, you be, you've quickly become one of my favorite authors. And a lot of it has to do uh, not, not just with like the plots, but you know, your, your writing style, your ability to craft characters. I could strip away any of the dialogue tags and know without a doubt who was talking, which character was, was talking. And that goes for even like the minor secondary characters. Wow. Um, but I'd like to peel back the writer's curtain a bit and pick your brain on how do you do that? Like, where does that, how do you build up that skill? Um, uh, for me personally, I got it from reading people who are really masters of dialogue. Uh, Walter Mosley, Elmore Leonard, mm. Dennis Lehane, mm. uh, James Lee Burke, uh, guys who are masters of pure dialogue. And what I, what I learned, and I don't know if this is what anybody else took from it, this is just what I'm taking from it. What I learned was, what they do is they create specific syntaxes for their characters. Hmm. Like if you read um, Elmore Leonard's swag, you know when Stick is talking and when Ryan is talking. Um, you know, Ryan's fast-talking ex-car uh, salesman, so he talks in big bursts. Stick is a, you know, a tough country boy from Florida, you know, from the Florida panhandle, and he's very taciturn, so he doesn't talk a lot. So his sentences are really short. Uh, and so I, I, I picked that up from Leonard and, and also De Lehane does that really good. Dennis Lehane, if you, especially his early detective work, you know, mm -hmm. you know, when even though Patrick is doing stuff in first person, you know, when Patrick is talking versus when Bubba's talking or when Angie's talking. Hmm. Um, and again, he used the same technique. Everybody has a specific syntax. So for me, when I was doing Ike, I had Ike. Ike is very, you know, he, he's a man of few words. Yeah. until he's pressed um he's like i say, he gives a good threat and his because he doesn't talk a lot his threats carry weight you know he's not saying a lot but when he does talk you better listen because every word means something right whereas buddy lee his way of dealing with his 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 sadness and his grief is to just constantly joke so he's always pulling out of one line he's always being silly always trying to be funny and sometimes it's forced because he doesn't want to deal with the reality of his situation. Mm. Whereas with Ike's wife, Maya, she's someone who, um, when she speaks, she speaks in long, complete sentences. She speaks in like topical paragraphs. She states the topic and then she states supporting clauses or supporting sentences behind the, the topic. And I did that in, on purpose. I did all of that intentionally, you know, because I, I wanted, like you said, for somebody who doesn't hear the, uh, the dialogue tags, I wanted them to know who was talking. I did that in um, Blacktop Wasteland, too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm having a little harder time doing that in the book I'm working on now because it's a lot of characters. So I like, <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I'm actually fighting fighting with my editor about that. But anyway, but yeah, I definitely do that on purpose. I, tr I try to do that intentionally. Uh, and I also think it makes the dialogue flow more naturally because yeah. we all don't talk the same. Right. You know? Uh, and so... Uh, uh, and so everybody has a different way of talking, a different way of communicating. So I definitely try to do that on purpose. Nice. I, think I, I used to, when I was screenwriting, um, the great thing about Final Draft is you can actually click on a character and it'll pull all that character's dialogue to the side. You can read through to make sure, you know, you, you have the consistency and do it. It's completely different animal with the, yeah. <laughs> with the book. They haven't invented that <laughs> program yet. So, um, yeah, that's a, it's definitely a challenge, I think. Hey, on social media, oh, yeah. um, you, you've gotten some recent uh, uh, shout outs from luminaries like R.L. Stein, Stephen King. Awesome. And so when I see all this and I and we know you a little bit, how important is your mama's words never rise above your upbringing 
to keep you grounded when people of that stature are, are looking forward to and praising your work? I'll tell you another uh, colloquialism my mama used to say all the time, <laughs> God rest her soul. She used to say, the shine wears off a of new pennies really quick. <laughs> and you got to think about that, you know, that yeah. it won't always be like this. I know right. that, you know, and so on the one hand, I'm very grateful. You know, I used to sneak Stephen King books into my study hall yeah. because my teacher was convinced they were Satan. Satan. <laughs> and, and for him to say something about my work, oh yeah, my teacher was like, this is the work of the devil. I'm like, well, that's a vampire <laughs> book. And that's about a werewolf. I don't see the devil in there, but whatever. <laughs> um, but you know, R.L. Stein, same thing. Yeah. was persona non grata in my school. Um, but you know, when somebody like R.L. Stein or Stephen King, or I actually got an, a really nice message from George Pelicanos uh, a couple of months back. Wow. Uh, you know, a guy that I grew up admiring, you know, The Wire and his his Nick uh, Stefano's detective novels and stuff. Or, you know, you know, Dennis Lehane sends my editor a very nice message about Razorblade Tears. The thing that I try to tell myself is enjoy it in the moment mm. because it's not always gonna be like that. And so that helps keep you grounded. You know, also, I'm a lapsed Southern Baptist, and we are, <laughs> if nothing, uh, mired and and terrified into being humble. So <laughs> that has a lot to do too. But um, you know, you get enough, uh, you get enough fire and brimstone sermons on a Sunday. Yeah. You, oh, yeah. like, I ain't saying shit to nobody. <laughs> um, but um, I think also, I think I like I said, I don't mean to be negative. Like I know this isn't going to last, but I know there's going to be a new hot writer behind me. My dream always was to be consistent. I didn't necessarily want to be like the new hot thing, but I wanted a career where I could just publish books consistently. I wanted to be able to write full time. Um, this is just icing on top of the cake. That being said, I don't know if I can curse and just bleep me out. Yeah. Oh, it's it. fucking awesome. <laughs> oh my God, it's so fucking awesome. Just, you know, sit up and see like Jimmy Fallon talking about my book on his TV I show. I know, I saw oh, that. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's insane. I mean, and I tell people all the time, I say this, I know people are sick of hearing it, but I am a poor country boy from the Virginia lowlands. I'm a college dropout. I've had, you know, numerous jobs. I've worked a lot of like public, uh, you know, uh, uh, manual labor jobs. I'm not a genius at all, but I will say I'm stubborn. And I'm, 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 I've got a lot of stick to it, to it to this. And I, I got that for my family. And so, you know, I think the prop, the thing is you got to have talent to get yeah. in this game, Yeah. but you also got to have uh, durability yeah. and durability will outlast talent. You know, yeah. I know a lot of talented people who have either left publishing or are not actively trying to get published. And that doesn't mean that they've lost their talent. That doesn't mean they're not great writers. But it's just a hard, hard business. And I know, I know without a doubt how lucky I am. I, I realize that very, very, uh, you know, it's very apparent to me that I'm very lucky. So I'm going to enjoy it while it lasts. And, you know, in five years, if I'm a, you know, what happened to them person? Oh, well, you can't take that uh, New York Times bestseller list away from me. So. <laughs> there you go. Well, we're going to kind of stick with the whole, the whole theme here. Last year around this time, you came on our show. You and I connected on Twitter and we set it up and via DM and when you were going to come on. Um, and then we stayed on for a couple hours because none of us had anything better to do uh, <laughs> after our interview. Well, now we're a year later. You have a publicist who, who sets up the interviews. Make sure you're together. <laughs> right. In case you have more than one interview like you do today. We, um, right, right. <laughs> in, in, you know, to, to steal a phrase from Ron Burgundy, you're you're kind of a big deal. Um, but tell us, and I know you're staying humble, and, and we're not helping, but that's okay. Um, tell us a bit about how your life has changed, uh, and, and I mean, and I mean that from the sense of, you know, how you approach your writing, how you approach your day, what what the demands are, whatever you want to share with us. Um. Yeah. I mean, it's changed a lot. Like last year, I was was just getting into being with a, a a major publishing company, for lack of a better word. And I really didn't understand what that meant. I mean, not saying that my agent didn't do a good job. He did do a good job of telling me what that meant. I just wasn't absorbing it. Like, oh, I'm with a big publishing company. Okay, I guess that'll 
mean more publicity. And it's totally different than being with an independent publisher. I started independent, you know, with a, a small press. Yeah. And a small press really feels, it feels, in some ways it's more personal, personal, yes. um, but it's also more punk rock. You know, it's like, right. you're, you, you guys are working, you and the, and the publisher are working together to hustle and scuffle and try to get your book here and get you an appearance there. And, you know, like I, I saved my money to go to BoucherCon to hawk my book, you know, and, and, that, and so you kind of doing that, like I said, that punk rock guys in a van type mentality. Yeah. When you get with a big publisher, all that's taken away from you. And it's, and it's taken away from you because they just want you to write. So you don't have to organize the, 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 the events. You don't have to beg somebody to get your book in their bookstore. Right. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's totally different. Um, I will say this, when you, get, when you get to a certain level of notoriety, I guess is a good way of saying it, hmm. you get some projects. Like I'm working on two projects right now that are deadlines that are coming hard and fast. And I'm trying to finish one this week so I can jump right into one next week and finish that. So that's a little bit different. That's a little more pressure, I think. But also, you get a little more flexibility. You know, if you could put that seller behind your name, people are a little mm -hmm. nicer to you. They're a little more open yeah. to kind of giving you some space. Uh, and so that's not bad. That's not a bad thing uh, at all. <laughs> but um, I think uh, for me, the, the main thing that changed is that, like I said, I'm writing full-time. I have opportunities that I never would have had prior to this. You know, like I said, the thing I'm writing, I'm doing a project where I'm working on, a, well, I can't talk about it, a secret project, but I'm, I'm using Final Draft in a secret project. It's not a movie, but I'm doing something with Final Draft for a secret project. And I'm doing a, a secret project with another author. And so those two things are really cool. In addition to writing my next book, for Flatiron. And so I think the thing that's changed the most is that I feel finally confident enough to call myself a writer. And somebody will say, well, you had Blacktop Wasteland and won all these awards. You didn't think you were a writer then? I, I, you know, this time, this year was the first time that I've been able to use my compensation from writing to pay the bills. You know? Nice. Yeah, I, awesome, I, I don't man. feel Congrats. that. I think... Yeah, I think the thing is, okay, I'll, I'll give you an example. So our car died or was dying. It was on its last leg. You know? Yeah. And uh, so we go to the car dealership and we're looking at some cars. And I'm a person who's never bought a new car. I've always had a used car. You know, my cars have always been subject to black lights. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what is that? Oh my God. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so we, we had the car dealership and the, the guy's like, well, let's look at these cars. I look at these cars. And, you know, Mr. Cosby, I think you qualify for this. You qualify for that. And uh, this is probably the most extravagant thing I've ever done. So I wanted to look at the uh, <laughs> the Dodge Charger with the Hellcat. Oh my but gosh. The person, oh yeah. yeah. But the person that I was with was like, no, we need to get a a regular car, not this time machine. And so <laughs> we get the car and, and we take it home. And I, I hesitate to say this because it's gonna sound like I'm bragging, so please don't take it that way. But we get this really nice SUV, the Dodge Journey 2021, and I was able to pay for it, like just pay for it straight out, yeah. you know? And that's the most extravagant thing I've ever done. And I sat in it, we pulled in the driveway and I was sitting in the driveway and I, I, I was looking at it. I was like, you know, my book did this. Man, it's my awesome, writing man. did this. And I don't think I fully was prepared for how that would feel. Cause I got a little choked up, you know, yeah, I, I got no a little kidding. choked up because it was like, I've been, you know, like you said, a lot of people think, oh, it's an overnight success. I've been writing since back when you had to send a self-addressed stamp envelope <laughs> To get your story back. Uh, <laughs> it, I was writing the Stone Age, you know, when your story turnaround was four to six weeks to see if they had gotten it, yeah. let alone getting it back. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, it's funny. I'll tell you another anecdote. This is a little mean spirited, but just bear with me. So talking about being with a big company and being with a big publisher, when I was with an independent publisher, there was a bookstore and I can say who it was, but there was an independent bookstore that I really, you know, they had been going through some things and I was like, oh man, I want to support the store. I'll go, I went and talked to the person there. I'm like, hey, you know, uh, 
you know, stock my book, stop my darkest prayer, and I'll do events here and I'll promote it. You know, we'll help each other, right? And that person was like, oh, I'll think about it. And they blew me off. Never heard yeah. from them again. Same story this year was begging for signed copies of Razor Blade Tears. And I wasn't petty. I gave him the copies. I gave him the copies. <laughs> but it, <laughs> it made me realize just how different my position is now than it was then, you know? Yeah. And, I, and I, think, I think because I came up the hard way, I think I value this way more than maybe somebody who, you know, if I was 24 years old coming out of an MFA program and all this was happening, y'all would see me on Dateline NBC like two years later because I wouldn't have been able to handle it. I would not have been able to handle it. It would have been like, you know, noted Southern author has furry orgy at his mansion. And it was like, <laughs> you better get an invite to that. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> we'll bring the booze. <laughs> But because I've grown and, and matured a little bit, I'm able to deal with the ups and downs of this yeah. and realize that the ups won't last forever and, and the downs are, are not permanent. Right, right, awesome. right. Well, John, we, uh, you have, you've completed the traditional portion of the interview. And then we're going to move on to the <laughs> lightning round where Here we're going to we ask go. you dumb, All stupid right. questions. And hopefully you give us dumb, stupid answers back. <laughs> We have a we have a, a little bit of a twist this time though. Um, we had a contest, uh, online contest, and one of our viewers uh, won, and they're gonna start the lightning round off. So uh, okay. as soon as Mike lets him, yeah, Frank is our Frank. Frank. Hey, hey Frank. Hey man. Hey. Cheers, Frank. Welcome, for welcome, the booze, brother. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, and, and Frank, Frank, after after he won the contest, sent us some booze from Creature nice. Comforts. Yeah, we need to get a, we need to get some of this to nice. Sean. Very nice. Uh, yeah, there it is. But uh, anyway, so, I'm glad you're enjoying. Frank, you want to? Yeah. All right. Absolutely. So, uh, Frank, we're gonna let you go first, and then uh, we'll get your questions out there, and then uh, we'll kind of move on to the rest of the uh, interview. But uh, Frank, since you are our big winner. Let's let's see what Sean can handle on uh, on your end. There. <laughs> oh, great! No pressure here. No, no. Gosh, let's see. Yeah. Man. So, I think if you've been following on Twitter, Chris kind of hangs his hat on page one thirty-seven and spends a lot of time focusing there. So, if you had to pick, you know, Sean or Mike, and what would they hang their hat on in your book? I mean, what would be like their expertise that you would focus on them? All right. Would it be working on I the think duster Sean, or would you keep them far away? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. I think Sean and Mike would both be in, in Blacktop Wasteland. They'd probably be on scene, uh, when is the jewelry heist? Scene 150. Oh, uh, no. I think, in, I think in Razor Blade Tears, though, I think uh, I would love to, I don't, and I don't know the page. I, I don't know the page, but I would love to see Sean and Mike in the bakery store. <laughs> Yeah, when Buddy Lee is turning over cakes. I would yeah. love to. What I, I, what I imagine is the two of them in there looking at something totally different and like, oh my God, this dude is wrecking this door. And, <laughs> and how they quietly leave without trying to get involved. Maybe not even quietly. <laughs> oh no, I, I would actually be catching the stuff he was going, you know, hey, this is ruined. Let me take it off your <laughs> You're not going to sell this cake now. I'll just take this. <laughs> All right, Frank. All right, so... You know, your, your first two books, and, and by the way, I just finished Blacktop, really enjoyed it, very different from uh, a lot of the spy thrillers I read, and it was a great a great read, and I can't wait to get into the next one, so yeah. thank you for that. What is um, the future? I mean, are, do you see most of your books being standalones, or do you see, you know, kind of getting into a series at some point with kind of like the, the first two books that I understand that you've read or written? You know, do you see a series down the road or is it pretty much going to be standalones? I would like to do a lot of standalones. However, my very first crime novel, My Darkest Prayer, uh, has a character who I had intended to have as a series character. Um, and it, it, it didn't take off the way I thought it would, but I may have an opportunity to come back to him. So I would love to do a, a, a series with him. I don't know about doing a series with Bug, but I 
do definitely hopefully have plans to uh, revisit the Montage family in about 10 years and see where they're at and see how everybody who survived, see how they're doing. Yeah. And uh, so I definitely would love to do that. Awesome. All right. And then, you know, I've been married to be uh, 29 years next month. And I I think there was a part in Blacktop where you wrote uh, something about a novelty fan. Is it the hill you want to die on? (laughs) And, you know, I I can tell you there's a lot of hills that I've died on that I, looking back, was a big mistake. (laughs) Is, Is there one? you know, from, from your personal experience that you look back on that kind of sticks out? So I was uh, with someone who was very dear to my heart and we were, um, we were uh, doing the laundry and we were putting the laundry away and um, she was putting up the washcloths and she was getting frustrated and I was like, what's wrong? And she's like, oh, we're missing a washcloth. I'm like, oh, and I went back to what I was doing and then I stopped and I came back into the pantry. I'm like, how the fuck do you know we're missing a washcloth? Because <laughs> like, we have 67 We have 67 washcloths and I'm only counting 66. And I was like, why the fuck do you count your washcloths? And so she said, don't you know how many black t-shirts you have? I said, someone could break in here right now, put a gun to my head. I say, pull the trigger because I do not know how many black t-shirts I got. And so the hill that I died on was I wouldn't let it go. Mm. And what I thought was a funny joke for like five minutes was an uncomfortable silence for a week. And so I've learned to let <laughs> stuff go. It is not worth it. The, the five second joke and laugh is not worth the uh the uncomfortable awkward silence that you got to put up with. So yeah, that's the hill I'm not gonna die on. Don't make fun of people. By the Who OCD. counts their washcloth? Come on, know, man. <laughs> got to be a gal no thing. Clue. Hey Frank, thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate Frank, those. Were oh, fantastic questions, man. Yeah, good questions. Fantastic, fantastic questions. Fantastic beer. Absolutely. absolutely. Glad you guys are enjoying them. Take care. Have a great night. Yes, I look forward Frank. to reading you, future work. All right. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it, buddy. But good question there you go those are pretty good questions damn it yeah that's that's not what the lightning round's about man let's get to the crap the the washcloth though come on all right that's pretty good all right so sean i'm up um the virginia legislature has reaches out to you and asks you to provide them with a new name for route one which by the way is still called the life of me jefferson davis highway the president the president of the uh confederacy yeah uh, it's way it's way past time. I know there's a bill out now to change it, but what would you call Route One? I would love for Route One to be called Arthur Ashe Highway. Yeah, that's my oh, yeah. serious, real. Uh, um, that's my serious, real answer. But the 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 devil in me would love for Route One to be called Virginia is for Lovers Highway. I just think that, <laughs> <laughs> it was such a weird motto back when i was a kid yeah and they quietly tried to get away from it no. but i'm like bring it back let's embrace it you know have condom stands every five miles or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i thought i thought you'd go with blacktop wasteland that sounds like a great name <laughs> oh for it. man that's too arrogant i think i would let somebody else do it <laughs> all right so you've been you have you've been given the ability to absorb the skills or talents of one person kind of like uh yeah, the X-Men. What's her name? Um, Jubilee. No, not Jubilee. Rogue. Uh, Rogue. 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 Yeah. So whose skills do you absorb? Yeah. Oh man, Walter Mosley. Yeah. I just want to like touch him on his shoulder and be able to write at scenes the way he writes scenes, to be able to write stories the way he writes stories in multiple genres across multiple That's the uh, craziest. Uh, mediums. Yeah. Yeah, he's just, he does whatever he wants. He's like Joe Lansdale in that way. You know, I just, I, he's another yeah. one. I'd love to like absorb his ability. I just write whatever the hell I want, you know? So, and he was doing that before he got like mega successful. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. yeah so he has a uh, master class. I, I'm, I've never taken a master class, but that's like one of the ones I'm thinking about yeah, I'm, taking. I'm, I, I saw that as well. I'd like it's to very that. good because I think it's based on the lecture he gave. He, he did a lecture series back in 2014. Oh, yeah. And I got to attend it. It was at a local college and it was excellent. He's such a good storyteller in person too, like a raconteur. He's just, he just is a masterful storyteller regardless of the medium. 
Wow. All right, so Razorblade Tears is being made into a movie, and the director wants to give you a role, and you get to pick the role, uh, but it can't be, it can't, you know, can't be Ike. Um, so wh- which do you pick? Oh, I'm going to be the jerk in the uh, barbershop. I'm going to be that, uh, <laughs> that asshole in the barber chair. That's the best, you know, because that's the one people are going to remember. Yeah. You know, nobody's going to remember the nice guy that worked at the convenience store that sold Buddy Lee's yeah, beer. No. It's like, I want to be the jerk that gets, I want to be the jerk that gets the shit scared out of him by a uh, tough ass Ike. So uh, yeah, that's, that'll be my role. I thought he Asshole was number one. I thought he was going to get, I thought he was going to get stuck. <laughs> really good. I was waiting for it. Uh, me too. It. All right. I'm up. <laughs> What is the proper ratio of sugar to tea for a Southerner? <laughs> you want the proper ratio or the healthy ratio? No, no, That's no. Two proper. different things. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 not the Pro- proper ratio. The proper ratio is three tablespoons to an eight ounce glass. The healthy ratio is probably a tablespoon nah, uh, to a gallon, but <laughs> nobody cares about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If your past equaled Ike's and you became known by a street name, what would it be? <laughs> you know my real my real nickname was when I was a kid? <laughs> no, we love it. Oh my we gosh, go. we're going to hear it. And now you're not going to believe it. You're not going to believe it. It was Dusty Books. No. That was my nickname as a kid. Because Dusty I, Books? Yes, Dusty Books. My my cousin George named me that because I used to have a backpack and I'd have all kinds because I used to buy my books. I used to get my books from like the library sales for like five yeah. cents yeah, for yeah, a paperback. Yeah. Or we go to like a, a, a we go to a yard sale, somebody's yard sale, and I get old books like 10 book paperbacks for a dollar. And I carry them around in my backpack when I was like 12, 13, 14, 15. And he started he he started calling me that and it stuck for it stuck till I went to college. What? Dusty Books. That was my Dusty nickname. Crazy. Books. Yeah, that's yeah. funny. He couldn't have committed yeah. a crime. His name is Dusty Books. <laughs> Dusty Books. <laughs> All right, DB. All right. This here was we a guy. Go. This was a guy. This was, <laughs> this was a guy who was nicknamed. Uh, this was a guy who was nicknamed the Mall. So you know, we we had an interesting set of nicknames around my way. Uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's see. Have you made any splurge purchases yet from your book sales? Besides the car, you know, I can't call the car splurge really because you kind of need one. it. But... Yeah, that other car was on his like on his last legs. It's like you know, it's riding riding around in a Fred Flintstone car. Um, <laughs> I will I will say this: I I did. <laughs> this is so stupid. I bought a home axe throwing set um, <laughs> because I was like. I was like up at four o'clock in the morning. I was writing. I had a problem and I was like, I'm going to leave it alone and I'm going to scroll through, you know, online retailers. And I was like, oh, this looks like something I should have. And I've used it <laughs> twice. I've used it twice. And my, and, and uh, it's sitting there gathering dust. And I feel bad that I spent money on it because it came with the Target and a stand, and there's three like big axes and a whetstone and all this stuff. And it's oh like, oh, gosh. this is so cool. And I went outside and I did it once. And I'm like, oh, I can throw an axe. I did the second time, oh, I can throw an axe. The third time, I was like, I don't need this skill. Why am I doing it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you are so fucking words. No, you can, if you write it in your next book, you can write that his, thing off. His new, his new street name is oh, Dusty yeah. Axe. Dusty, Dusty Axe. axe. <laughs> Oh, bring the axe. There you go. Bring it to Bowser Con. We'll use it. Yeah, and just throw it to the, yeah, throw it the, throw it the bar. <laughs> the Marriott would love to have it at Bowser Con. Come on. Oh yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm wrapping it wrapping it up with my three. So you write some formidable, sometimes terrifying dudes. Describe the scariest cat you've ever known. Oh man, oh man, it's scary. I, well, I'll go back. The scariest cat I've ever known was somebody I was related to, my cousin, the mall. Uh, his nickname was the mall because he hit a dude one time so hard. The doctor who examined the guy thought he had been attacked with a hammer. Oh, you know, I... this, this guy, he's, he was just, he was just the toughest son of a bitch I've seen in my life. I remember yeah. we were at uh, a shot house, an illegal drinking establishment. And this guy showed up with his brother and they were angry at my cousin, the mall, at mall, 
because they were under the impression that Maul had been sleeping with the brothers, the, the guy's girlfriend, which he had. Mm-hmm. We all knew it. <laughs> so they challenged. <laughs> so they were like, you know, come on outside. And uh, I'll never forget. He was sitting there and he got up and he took a shot and he put it down. He said, if I go outside, I don't want you to complain when I'm whooping your ass. And they were like, it's two of us, it's one of you. Come on outside. He went outside and proceeded to beat them like they owed him money. I mean, <laughs> it was just a brutality on a level I'd never seen. He hit one guy so hard his pants fell down. I kid you not. I saw that with my own two eyes. Hit the dude and his pants, like his ass muscles relaxed and his pants just fell down. And the other dude was like begging off. He was like, he was like, please, please, I, 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 I give. All right, you, it's over, it's over. He's like, oh no, oh. He said, <laughs> he said, we just getting started, honey. And he proceeded to beat the hell out of him some more. Run, toughest dude I've ever known. Oh Run. my god. Wow. <laughs> okay, well, Mike mentioned yeah. toughest guy I've ever been in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Mike mentioned splurge purchases, and besides axes, what is the one item you have too many of? Oh, books. <laughs> that's not true i have way too many books i have my my to be red pile if it falls over it'll kill somebody like, <laughs> but i see we a know book, that feeling I, I, yeah I, I i love to read and so i'll see a book and i'll finish it or i'll get halfway through a book and i'm like oh man i'm gonna start this one because i really want to see what this is about and i'll go back to the other one and i bounce all around and it's just you know it i just love reading i think as a writer, it helps you develop your own style yeah, because sure. you see what works for you and what doesn't work for you. Like right now, I've got two books on my desk right now. Um, I just finished Walking Through Needles by Heather Levy, which is a great dark book. You know, you know don't don't read this if you got a faint heart. Mm. And um, I'm rereading uh, Michael Ferris Smith's Blackwood. Okay, These two well, books man. couldn't be more different. But I just, I love reading. I, lo- I love the act of reading. I love being able to sit down and get me like a little little glass of whiskey and maybe sit on my deck and kind of just go into another world. Yeah. And uh, so I got way too many books. I guess if I had to give another answer, I got way too many black t-shirts and I don't know why. How many? I was wondering if it's, how many rags? How many how rags many? you guys have? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and I get, and it's like, I don't know exactly how many I have but I know when one has gone missing. And like, <laughs> yes. That's right. Okay, last question. All right. Last question. As far as we're concerned, you are the the undisputed reigning king of the simile. <laughs> um, yes. And I know your editor had you actually remove some, which blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm going to challenge you a little bit. Give us a simile. This interview was... This you know, interview was as... It was... It was as hot as the bottom of the devil's uh, boot heels, but it was as much fun as watching two eels fight in a bucket full of snot. <laughs> that's that's it. Love it. Love it. That's, that's actually now going to be our newest show motto. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to trademark that now. Better, better than a bucket full of snot with two eels. <laughs> Hey Sean. <laughs> so I was telling I was telling the guys, and I know they agree. We read a shit ton of books throughout the year. Top this is top three, top two. This is one of my favorite reads of this year, dude. This this was fantastic. Thank you for writing it. Thanks for coming on the show, dude. You're awesome. Yeah, this is this was Thank one of my guys top for three me, of all time, Sean. This is one of my top three of all time. Oh, wow. You hit me, oh, wow. You hit me man, not that's... just, you, you hit me not just as an entertaining story, but you had me thinking about the characters and the situations and you had me thinking about my own self and how maybe yeah. I would react yeah. and, and maybe my own fallacies. You really hit me way beyond just an entertainment read. So for me, this is my favorite book of the year. And that's really hard for me to say. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. Thank you, guys so much for having me there's so much fun uh can't wait till we can do it again and hopefully we'll be able to see each other about your or something i'm looking oh yeah to you oh, guys are great there, man i thank you i thank you guys so much man appreciate it so much thanks Sean. Right, man. we'll see you next time brother peace out all right, all right brother bye-bye hey boys sean 
S.A. Cosby on the show. Mm-hmm. We were talking razor blade tears. Yes. One of our favorite, favorite stories of the year. One of our favorite authors. So let's raise a glass to Sean for coming on the show. Awesome writer. Awesome storyteller. Cheers. Thanks, Cheers. Frank, for the booze. Mm. Mm. Thanks, Frank M., for coming on. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I'll wait. This It'll take a while, outro. right? It'll take a while. For razor blade to get tears. it all out, sure. Yeah, Sean, that's what I'm saying. S.A. Cosby was just on one of our newest favorite authors of all time. Yes. And here he is. Here he is. Chris is ready to give us his one-man take on the show. One-man take. It's a three-man show, one-man take. And game. <laughs>